0: Lord, thank you for um, this time to come and to worship you and to hear your word preached. Um, would you let it sink deep into our hearts tonight? And would you give Kevin the word to speak? Um, and would you prepare our hearts to receive what you have preached? Thanks again for bringing us all together here on Zoom. And Amen. Thank you, guys. That that house looks cool. I need to. I hope you still be there when I can come over. Um, so we are looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians. We are still in chapter one. One of the good things about Colossians is there's only four chapters, so we don't have to rush through it. Um, I I want to read a little more than what I'm actually going to talk about tonight because it helps set the context. Particularly, um, verse 4 of chapter 2 is when he finally kind of talks about why he's saying all the stuff he's been saying that we've been talking about the last two weeks. And he says this, basically, in verse 4 of chapter 2, I say this, meaning all the stuff he's opened the letter with, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So, he's concerned That they're going to be misled. And so he writes them this letter. He starts out letting them know how he's been praying for them, and particularly this prayer of thanksgiving. But then he goes into the section we're gonna talk about tonight, which is probably best understood as subversive poetry. And I don't know if you think of the Bible as containing subversive poetry, but I think some of that's because of where we're socially located when we read the Bible and where the people who originally would have received this letter were socially located. What I mean is, when we hear the term Jesus is Lord, it doesn't have the same connotation that it would have had for people in the first century who lived in the Roman Empire. Part of what it meant to live in the Roman Empire was you regularly had to offer up a pinch of incense to Caesar as a god and say, Caesar is Lord. So whenever people who are part of the Roman Empire, like these people in Colossae who received this letter, and they hear Paul or the other apostles talk about Jesus as Lord, it really is a a clash of empires. And I don't think we think of it that way very much. Um, You know, of course, throughout history, particularly some really bad periods of American history, I'm thinking about during the days of slavery, when the Bible was used to hold up and support an empire that was far from Christian in the way it treated all people, right? Um, It's not only is it a misunderstanding about what the kingdom of God is about and what it's for, but it's particularly grievous, I would say even blasphemous, in light of what the Bible says about the real kingdom, the real kingdom. And that's what Paul is trying to get these people to understand. They live in a time and in a place where there is a clear conflict between rival kingdoms, And rival lords. But I would argue we live in such a time as well when there are rival kingdoms and rival lords. The problem is we often don't see it. Nonetheless, by seeing the way Paul wants to encourage these people, lest they be carried away by plausible arguments, I think he can really help us to see this real distinction. And why It matters that Jesus is Lord. That's what we're really looking at tonight. What's the big deal about Jesus? What does the Bible say? What does this subversive poem say? As I said, standing firm in the faith, not being swept away, requires not only understanding and being grounded in the truths of Christianity, it also requires our hearts and imaginations gripped by the kingdom of God that subverts the kingdoms of this world. This is a a book called Colossians Remixed. I I really like this because I think it helps set up what we're going to look at tonight. Brian Walsh, Sylvia Kiesmat say this, in a world populated by images of Caesar, this was the first century world of Colossae, in a world populated by images of Caesar who is taken to be the son of God a world in which the emperor's preeminence over all things is bolstered by political structures and institutions, an empire that views Rome as the head of the body politic in which an imperial peace is imposed, sometimes through the capital punishment of crucifixion, this poem here in Colossians is nothing less than treasonous. In the space of a short, well-crafted three stanza poem, Paul subverts every major claim of the Roman Empire, turning them on their heads and proclaims Christ to be the creator, redeemer, and Lord of all creation, including the empire. And I think one of the lessons that we have from the letter to the Colossians is that we need poems and poets who will capture our hearts and minds with a vision of another reality, another kingdom, another way of living. It's one of the reasons we sing some of the songs that we sing, and it's why we're going to look at this subversive poem here in Colossians. So let's look at our text. I'm actually going to start reading chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 11. I'm using the New International Version, if you're wondering. I'm going to read down into chapter 2 a little bit, but we're really going to focus our time tonight on verses 15 through 24. 15 through 24. But just to give it a little context, I'm going to start at verse 11. This is God's word. The Apostle Paul says this May you all be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That's a lot of big universal cosmic language, if you will. And I want you to think of it in terms of saying this kind of thing when you have somebody on the throne who claims to be God, who claims to be the one who is preeminent in all things, in fact, demands that he be worshipped as God. And here Paul writes this letter to this little group of Christians saying, that's not The kingdom we serve. I think when you see it in its original context you realize that the conflict between Christianity and any kind of empire is always going to be a violent one. And one of the great tragedies in our day and age is that we've tried to make peace so often with rival empires with other lords on the throne. This is a wake-up call This subversive poetry. Let me pray, and then we're going to explore what Paul has to say and what it means for us uh, even tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you speak so clearly and forthfully, and yet it's a little scary to think about the implications of this. Um, Most of us don't like to make waves, and yet following the crucified Lord who was deemed a threat to the empire, well, how can we not make waves? We pray, Lord, that you would give us courage, you would give us strength, you would give us, most importantly, a vision of Jesus who is preeminent in all things. A vision that would transform us. A vision that would wake us from our slumbers and our lethargy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's making some really huge claims here isn't he? Some really huge claims. And, and here's the first thing I would say is that Jesus is not just some little spice to add zest or a little spirituality to your life. He's not. Like, if you take seriously what Jesus said about himself and what the early Christians claimed about him, he can't just kind of fit in to a life where you have allegiances to other kingdoms. As Abraham Kuyper, who was prime minister of the Netherlands, also the founder of the Free University of Amsterdam, really interesting guy, both a, a minister and a political leader and an educator, he said this over a 100 years ago, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermeneutically sealed off from the rest. There is not a square inch In the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine there is nothing that you're studying there is nothing you will do that does not involve territory or ideas or pursuits over which Jesus has not already said, This is mine. He is sovereign over all, He is Lord over all. If that's true, then everything matters, and the Christian faith matters for all of life and I would submit that that's what Paul is laying out here for us but let's let 's uh, dig into it if, if we can I, I want to first this is a little bit of a backtrack, but it 's important for us to understand. What Paul focuses on first here is what has been done to us in salvation. And this is important because when you hear me say that the the, the, the um, conflict between authentic Christianity and the empires of this world is to be a violent one, you may think either like, okay, well, you know, let me, let me have at it. Or most likely you're going to say, oh, I've kind of failed miserably because I've compromised I've not really stood up for Jesus in a bold way like I should have. And so it's important that we understand what Paul says first before giving them this vision is he tells them what's happened to them. He focuses them on what has been done to us in salvation. When you go through this passage, particularly if you look back at like verse 13, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, that's past tense, and transferred Uh, to us the kingdom of his beloved son, past tense, in whom we have redemption, present possession, the forgiveness of sins, present possession. Past tense, something that he's done has brought us a present possession. The gospel is not something we aspire to. The gospel, the good news gives us something. It it gives us something that we possess. It's not just an opportunity to try again and to try to impress God or to try to live our lives in a way that he'll really love us. No, the good news is Jesus has done everything to secure for us forgiveness of sins, redemption. We have this as a possession, and there is freedom in possession. Most of the bondage in our lives comes from trying to get things we think we have to have that we don't have. And things especially bind us when we think that all we need to do to get them is to work a little harder. You can never be set free from that. But in the gospel we don't have a message of just try a little harder to make absolutely sure God loves you. No, we have something that has happened to us. And then if you jump down to verse 20, he talks about this about Jesus is through Christ he's going to reconcile to himself. God through Christ is going to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, how? making peace by the blood of his cross. Now this is this is a really big deal, okay? reconciliation, all things being reconciled means that two parties were at war and now have been brought back together. Christ has made peace because his blood, which signifies his death, was shed in our place as our substitute, taking the death we deserved. He died the death we deserved at the hands of God. You see, Christianity is not just a nice little philosophy it's a bloody religion. The heart of Christianity is, a, is an, an empty cross, a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Nothing less than that is Christianity. It's about a God who actually poured out his wrath on Jesus, who made peace between two parties that were, that were at war with one another, mankind and God. But not all those who profess faith in Christ, I hope you understand, actually believe this. There are a lot of people who profess the name of Christ, who would call themselves Christians, who really don't like this reconciling through his blood. They think that that's uh, just this horrible old-fashioned idea. There was a theologian lived back in the 50s named Reinhold Niebuhr who famously said about this kind of theology, what in his day was known as liberal theology. It's generally known as more progressive theology, not to be confused with politics, okay? But progressive theology or liberal theology, here's what he said. A God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a ministry of a Christ without a cross. That's not Christianity. It's a different religion but it often goes by the name of Christianity in our day and age. Just have to tell you, because a lot of students come to Belmont not knowing that there really are two different religions that go by the name Christianity. There's a guy, Jay Gresham Machen, um, who was a pastor. He died in the 30s, and he wrote a book about this very thing called Christianity and Liberalism that liberalism is not a kind of Christianity, it's really a different religion. And again, listen to what Niebuhr says. I think he's right on. A God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a ministry of a Christ without a cross. And you're like, oh, but I hate this idea that God has wrath. And I, and I don't like to tell people that they're sinners. That just seems like it's going to introduce some psychological complex into their uh, mind or whatnot. Guys, that's Christianity. Christianity is about a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And Paul wants to make sure that they are reminded of that, right? But it's because of this that they are presented blameless in God's sight. That's what's so amazing. And you need to understand this here, right? We were, his goal in this, right, was that we would be made secure in his love, blameless in his sight. God does not love us because we're beautiful. God doesn't even love us just because we have the potential. He loves us, uh, the same apostle Paul said in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners. And there's nothing that will bring security to your life like that, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what do you think he's going to find out about you that's going to make him change his mind. Nothing. He already knew who you were and he saved you anyway. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. But then Paul wants to make sure that we don't just focus on the what of salvation, that it's a finished work accomplished by the bloody cross and the empty tomb. But he also wants us to focus on who it is that did did, did this, right? It's vital that we see who it is that rescued us. That's when our gratitude for what has been done is multiplied exponentially and turns to wonder. Theology should always lead to doxology. Right understanding about what God has done and who it is that's done this work makes it all the more astonishing the one who is holy, who can't even look on sin, loved sinners to life. That's remarkable. must never take it for granted. Look at what Paul says about Jesus. Jesus is the one, he says, in whom all deity dwells. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? Now, I want you to remember that Paul is writing the letter to the Colossians before any of the four Gospels are written. Colossians is older than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, okay? And I know that some people uh, like to say that it took a while before Christians kind of evolved this idea that Jesus was God. Listen, Colossians was written less than 30 years after Jesus died. Less than 30 years after Jesus died, And if you want to see full, developed, high Christology, believing that Jesus is God, Lord over all things, it's already fully in place by the time the letter of the Colossians is written. And why might that be the case? Well, because this is what Jesus taught about himself. Paul isn't making this stuff up. He's echoing things that Jesus himself said, as we're going to see as I go through some of this tonight. The early church believed this stuff about Jesus and who he was because Jesus taught this and because he did things that blew up their categories and drove them to find new categories to understand who he was. So who is Jesus? Well, let's look the way Paul talks about it. Verse 15, he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I know there are some groups like the Jehovah Witnesses that jump on this verse and say, Jesus is not eternal God. He was created. It says here, he's the firstborn of all creation. But that's a serious misunderstanding of what this phrase firstborn meant in Paul's day. The firstborn didn't really matter so much or or mean so much the order of birth. It meant who was the heir who would receive all things. It's not so much saying that he was born, it's a way of saying the chief heir. And we know that from all kinds of other um, Greek literature and and writings of the time. It's a well-established fact, that's what that phrase means. It's not saying that he was created. He is the image, it says here, of the invisible God. Now, get your mind around that. (laughs) How do you get your mind around that? I think when you start to read this, you're like, okay, I don't think anybody would have just sat down and thought about that. Like, here's what you need to understand. Jewish monotheistic men hung out with Jesus for three years. After they saw him crucified, they went around telling people that he was God in the flesh. That's not something any Jewish man would have thought unless they were driven to that conclusion because they could explain what they'd experienced no other way. Don't let anybody fool you with plausible-sounding arguments. The early church believed Jesus was God. As a matter of fact, there's strong evidence that what, from verse 15 on, Paul is actually quoting maybe a pre-existing hymn. So not only do we maybe have what was written in A.D. 60 here, but maybe something that goes back even farther. So the idea that sort of legends about Jesus grew up over like a century or two, and then people kind of came around that had not ever known Jesus personally, and then they start to like kind of have these ideas that maybe he was God, like that's nonsense. That's just, as a matter of historical fact, nonsense. A.D. 60, 30 years after Jesus lived, when a lot of the people were still around who'd seen him risen from the dead—look at 1 Corinthians 15 if you want to see where Paul makes that claim We're saying that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right? And why? Well, Jesus said this about himself. John 14, verse 9. He says, "'If you have seen me, you've seen the Father.'" What an astonishing claim. People are like, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. That's nonsense. The only way you can say that is if you have no idea how Jews talk or you have no idea about the Old Testament. When Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that's very much a claim to deity. And that's why the early church believed this stuff. Next, he says in verse 16, for by him, again, meaning Jesus, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. (laughs) That's not a mere human being that they're being talked about here, right? And notice that in your face to Caesar, that Paul is so bold to write here. Like he's writing in a context where Caesar is saying, he's the dominion, he's the ruler, he's the authority. And Paul says, no, nonsense. By Jesus, all things were created, on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. When you are freaking out, (laughs) let your mind run to this verse. This is what the church from the very beginning has believed about the one we worship, Jesus. For by him, all things are created in heaven and on earth, right? Now, the Jews believed in one God who created heaven and earth, but Jesus claimed he was this God, right? The Greeks and the Romans had all kinds of crazy ideas about the creation, but Paul is unashamedly dogmatic at this point because Jesus was dogmatic at this point. He is Lord over all. It goes on in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. They all hold together because he's the sustainer of all things. How can he say that he was before all things? Wasn't he born in Bethlehem? Yes, he was born in Bethlehem. But that's not the whole story as Jesus himself declared one time when he was arguing with some Jewish leaders about where he got his authority. Now, the Jews would say, Abraham was our father. Jesus has the audacity to tell them in John chapter 8, your father is actually the devil. (laughs) He didn't mince words, right? He wasn't out to, you know, make friends. Um. People that, that met Jesus and actually interacted with the real Jesus either wanted to worship Him or kill him. Almost never is somebody kind of neutral towards Jesus, right? So the, the Jewish leaders are arguing with him, and they eventually they get a bit exasperated and they say, are you, "Are you actually saying that you, Jesus, are greater than our Father Abraham? He's like the father of our religion. And here's what Jesus says. John records Jesus' astonishing words in chapter eight of his gospel. Verse 56, Your, this is Jesus' words. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So the Jewish leaders picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up stones to kill him? Well, because they knew that what he was saying was blasphemous. What did he say that ticked them off so much? He said, I am. That was the special name that God revealed to Moses. This is my name, Moses. I am that I am. And Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Everything Abraham was about culminates in me. And before Abraham was, I am. Like Paul didn't come up with this out of the blue. This isn't some legend that just developed. This is what Jesus claimed about himself. But look at what it says next. And, verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, Preeminent. Now, this is really fascinating because Paul is saying that the church should be the place where the true reality that Jesus is Lord over all is seen most clearly. And, and it's fascinating to see actually the structure. If you think of this as a three stanza poem, which in the Greek it very much has that form, then you see like verses 15-15. Through um, 17 is like stanza 1 in the Greek, and then 18, 19, and 20 is stanza 2. And when you see that, you see this fascinating thing. Mark uh, Maynell, who actually is a guy I met because he was here in town um, not too long ago, um, he has a commentary in Colossians where he says this just as Jesus made the cosmos, that's 15, 16, and 17, he's the creator of all things in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible. Just as Jesus made the cosmos, so Jesus made the church. The words and structure of Colossians 1, 18 through 20, where Jesus is, it's talking about Jesus as the head of the church, deliberately echo those of verse 15 through 17. The implication, therefore, is that the church is the starting point for God's new creation. Its very existence assures us that everything will be remade, restored renewed. Now, that's glorious, but it's also a bit discouraging when you think about what we see. If the church is basically to be the place where Jesus as Lord is seen most clearly, then maybe you'll understand why it's so outrageous and even blasphemous when religious leaders use their place of authority to serve any other goal than to hold up Jesus as being preeminent. When they brazenly disobey what God has said, seeking to curry favor with political leaders or other powerful people. Do you understand how twisted that is and how blasphemous that is? Oh, I know you may sense it, right? But here it is in black and white. The church is to be the place where Before anything else, Jesus' lordship is seen so clearly that it gives us confidence that all things really will be made new. And I just tell you guys, I think it's hard to believe that the church can recover anytime soon the credibility lost in the last five years in the public eye, as so many in the church have sought to secure favor from the powerful. It shouldn't be that way at all. Repentance must start with the church, naming the ways they've sought to gain power rather than give all glory to Jesus. Because in Jesus, in Jesus, we should see the beginning of a new kingdom, a new creation that demonstrates there is another way to live. Look at verse 19, for in him, or you could say, because in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I love that. Don't ever think that Jesus had to talk the Father into the plan of salvation. I know a lot of people have that kind of mistaken idea, like God the Father wanted to judge everybody and destroy everybody, and Jesus like pleads with him, and then God changes his mind. That's not true at all. Like the whole Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, were all in union together working salvation, right? And God was pleased, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things. <laughs> Again, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Like how does that even make sense? At one level, that's like, I think it's one of the clearest demonstrations that what Jesus did, who he was, blew up all the pre-existing categories and required new categories. I remember um, one time I I had a student in RUF who said, hey, my, my roommate would be interested in talking to you about Christianity, I said, okay, cool. I didn't know the didn't know the guy, but I'm I'm always up for talking about that. So we met in the Jack back when I could meet students in the Jack, and um, this guy started going off on um, d- did I think that the Trinity was logical and why did Christians believe in the Trinity, um, and I said, well, he, I, I mean, logical? No, that it wasn't like they sat down and kind of philosophically thought abstractly about God and and, and, and no. Like this man, this Jewish man that they knew named Jesus of Nazareth, like did things they couldn't explain and then died. They saw him die on a cross. He's put in a tomb with a stone and Roman soldiers there to guard it. And, and in a couple days, he's going around risen from the dead. Like they were driven to the conclusion that Jesus was God. And they did not have a category for that. Yeah, you don't find the word Trinity in the Bible because people are kind of grasping it, trying to figure out what in the world just happened. Do you know the most often quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament? Do you know what it is? It's not one that you probably have even really thought about because it's not one I think about very much, but here it is. This is the verse from the Old Testament that is most quoted in the New Testament the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, that's fascinating, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever tried to share the gospel with somebody. Chances are that wasn't the verse you quoted. But that was the verse, do you understand? That's the verse that most explained what the early Christians had experienced. We all missed it. None of us really understood who he was or what he was out to do. Heck, his best friend Peter tried to keep him from going to the cross. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. Nobody understood what was going on. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The only way we can understand what happened was by looking back and looking at the story as it developed particularly with his resurrection, right? That's what what drives the early church to the kinds of statements that Paul makes here. And then Paul goes further and focuses us on God's goal in the gospel. His goal. And it's way bigger than most of us realize, guys. The goal of God in the gospel is not just to save souls or to issue a get-out-of-hell-free card. Don't ever trivialize the good news. Oh, it's certainly precious news that you can be saved from death and hell by trusting in Jesus. But it's so much bigger than that. And that's what it says here, right? That his goal, verse 20, was to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If we're living for less than this goal, then we're insulting Christ and his death on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to make all things right, not just to save souls. And then look at verse 23. Maybe this troubled you as I read it. The if. If indeed you continue in the faith. Now, in Greek, what's interesting is if, um, by the very construction of the grammar you can tell if the one using the word if expects the thing to actually happen or not to happen. So it's not so much a statement of this is in real doubt and I'm really not sure. I mean, after all, he just said that Jesus is the one who, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But what he's saying in verse 23 is don't give up. Don't give up. There's a new kingdom that is broken in. You're part of it. Don't give up. Don't give up. And then this last thing. Now, we'll talk more about this as it dovetails into chapter 2 next week, but I just want to mention this. This is really one of the more astonishing things that I think you find in any of Paul's letters. Paul is so focused on the gospel, and particularly that Jesus sacrificed everything, that the more he thinks about it, the more he talks about it, the more he thanks God for it, I think that he actually starts to become the gospel himself. Let me explain what I mean. As Paul contemplates the reality of Christ, the one who is above all, who made all, is before all, is preeminent in all things, the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, the Christ who gave his life for us at the cross, it begins to change him into the image of Jesus. And Paul is now no longer focused on his own comfort, just as Jesus' life was not focused on his own comfort. Indeed, Paul's life is now modeling Christ's life. Christ who gave up everything to build up God's precious bride, his church. Look at the way he says it here. Now I rejoice, verse 24, in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. That's a weird verse. What does that mean? Is Paul saying that Christ didn't do enough? No, that would be absurd, especially after all we read. Like, if anything, he, he's wanting us to get a bigger vision of what Christ did, okay? So what does he mean? The best way to understand this is that there is a certain amount of suffering appointed to the church for the kingdom of God to be realized and manifest and spread. And Paul's saying, part of my privilege is to take an extra measure of that suffering, and to even enjoy suffering for the kingdom, because it's what Jesus did. The book of Hebrews says this remarkable thing, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. He wasn't rejoicing on the cross, but he endured the cross for the joy set before him, And Paul is so consumed by what Jesus was consumed by, making all things new, that he says, if it helps us to get there, then I want to take an extra measure of the sufferings, because the kingdom is born through suffering. That's remarkable. If you want something to live for, something to die for, well, there it is. And if that's the vision that captures your heart, well then you know what, you're in good company. Because that's what Jesus lived for and that's what Jesus died for. So if you want to follow Jesus, this is what it's about. It's not about avoiding suffering as much as you possibly can. While Christ's suffering ushered in the kingdom, the full manifestation of the kingdom will come through the suffering of the church. Again, that's what's been so distressing to see. So many people that think the church needs to win, that the church needs to be powerful, that the church needs to be in some like dominant kind of position that we need to, 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 to you know, uh, the church, the church and the kingdom go forward through suffering. Paul understood that. The empires of this world aren't about that. And that's why, if you're trying to follow Jesus, but also live for power and influence and fame, well, there's going to be a collision one day. Jesus invites you to take up your cross and follow him. And he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. But consider who it is that says that. The one who made all things. The one who suffered for us. The one who died to make all things new. He can be trusted. His word is sure. He's good. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you that while we so often do everything we can to avoid pain, Lord, when we come to understand this vision, laid out here. Lord, fill our hearts and minds with a different goal, a different vision. Not one that seeks suffering for its own sake, but seeks first the kingdom. Lord, we want to be more like Jesus, even if that means wanting his kingdom more than our kingdom. Help us. Help us to pray that, to long for that with integrity. Help us to repent and to beg forgiveness where we live for other goals. And thank you, Jesus, that we know you will always, you will always give us grace. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, no. Jack, you guys want to do the the doxology for us? Because nobody wants me to lead it. Mute your your screen and then you can take a picture. Does that make sense? Do it quick.